Hi, I'm Annie Fadley. I am a senior policy associate at Civic Ventures. We're going to get to the episode in a second, but first I wanted to tell you about an amazing new show that we're listening to called Your Primary Playlist. If you're like us, you might feel a little fatigued already by this presidential primary. With such a diverse field of candidates that's running in 2020, it can be super difficult for even the most tuned in to keep track of who's saying what and who we agree with. Well, good news. That's where your primary playlist comes in. It's an interview-style show. It's hosted by Emily Tish sussman and it breaks down the major issues facing our country, featuring all women guests, the real experts behind the issues like gun safety, health care, and climate. Upcoming episodes include a conversation about the future of the Democratic Party with Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a discussion of reproductive rights with Cecile Richards, and an interview with Neera Tanden, the president of the Center for American Progress, all about the economy. You can find your primary playlist wherever you get your podcasts, so do yourself a favor and subscribe. Here's the show. We cannot end up in a circumstance where we fear automation. Many of us may lose our jobs because of robots. It sounds like a newfangled problem, but the solution is actually pretty old school, taking yes. care of your workers. Yes, it's not that complicated. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. Confessions of an American Capitalist, caught on tape. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. So, Paul, in this episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk about automation and jobs. Mm. And that's a subject that's very much on the minds of lots and lots of people. Yeah, it's something that is always discussed in the economic sphere, and there's always a little bit of a panic to it. There yeah. always has been a little bit of panic to it, uh, the dis- discussion of robots taking your jobs. Yeah. What's interesting is to, you know, there's a lot of panic in the newspapers today, but there's been panic in the newspapers for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, Annie in our office actually did a favor for me and went back uh, in history to f- try and find headlines from newspapers. <laughs> yeah. And it was astounding what she found going way, way, way back to the 1920s, 1930s. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, a robot is after your job. New technology isn't a panacea. New York Times, 1980. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it, it, it goes way, way back. And then 1955, New York Times, automation seen as boon, danger. E- economist tells joint group it could increase wealth and eliminate jobs. So it's like, it's the same headline. <laughs> yeah, it's just different just, styles yeah, because yeah. of the decade. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. But, but you know, so automation for sure is a really uh, important force in human economies, but it, it isn't a new thing. Right. And it isn't even a thing that dates back to the Industrial Revolution. It's a thing that dates back to the first time that a person tied a rock to a stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that, you know, uh, my favorite example is digging holes. You know, in the beginning, people dug holes with their fingernails. Mm-hmm. And then somebody invented the shovel. Yeah. And, you know, like if you think about the shovel as a piece of automation, I mean, there's simply no doubt that a person with one good shovel can dig literally 100 times as many holes as a person with their fingernails. Right. And uh, so, you know, you know, you could argue that that one shovel eliminates 100 jobs or something like that or 99 jobs. Right. And, and yet... 
we continue to dig holes. There's lots of people with shovels. Uh, yeah. and, and shovels were replaced, of course, by backhoes, right, <laughs> which right, dig right, yeah. even more holes and bigger holes and better holes. And the, the, the tools, you know, you start with simple tools and then the tools get more complex. And with the complexity comes, you know, comes more complex problems, right? Yes. Like, an, and, and better solutions and more complex problems. That's right. And the really interesting thing about the transformation that technology brings and automation brings is that um, to build, to, to have a shovel requires an insane amount of technology. Yeah. Right, just to, to make a shovel. Yeah, it turns out to be a very very hard thing to do. Because I couldn't it, do it. Yeah, <laughs> no, nor, nor could any of our listeners, because right. it requires you to, uh, you know, find metal ore, smelt it, and turn it into a shovel, and then somehow attach it to a stick. Yeah, uh, no single person could do that. It takes an enormous uh, amount of technology, an enormous amount of cooperative labor to produce the shovel that enables you to dig holes so quickly to say nothing of building a backhoe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which will put a zillion shovel diggers out of work, mm -hmm. but requires in all, you know, an almost, you know, uh, just, a, just an incredible number of people with incredibly specialized skills and an incredible amount of technology at their disposal to, to, to build one of those backhoes. Right. And so, the the thing about technology is that yeah it does replace tasks and uh, jobs but but by so doing creates new jobs and new tasks yeah. in the process and the question is how do we organize a society that changes in this way in ways that benefit the broad you know the broad society over time so I mean I want to be clear here that that we're not saying that automation is 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 a made up threat or anything. I think the 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 thing that changes with each new sort of automation panic you see in the news is the kind of people who are affected by it, the jobs yeah. that are affected by it, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the last century, agriculture went from a third of all jobs to one percent of jobs in the last century, and so and now uh, what we're seeing is automation in sectors that previously. Uh, haven't seen these levels like yeah. the you know uh, uh, there's uh, information business services healthcare and retail uh, so those 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 are uh, job sectors that exploded over the last century and yeah. now they're seeing a new form of automation right so right. it's a real it, problem yeah it, yeah it, it's it's a it's a it's a very uh, it's a very big problem in the near term to find ways of transitioning from one sort of uh, technological regime to another technological regime and to find ways to integrate the folks who, um, whose, who, who whose tasks or jobs are being automated away into new tasks and jobs. But over the long term, I guess one of my strong feelings is, is we're not going to run out of jobs until right. we run out of problems. Right. And we've got a lot of problems to solve. Yeah. I don't think we're anywhere near to the end. So, yeah. so the, yeah, the automation is not the problem. It is the displacement. That's the problem. Yeah, correct. I'm super excited to, to get to talk to my old friend, Heidi Scherholz, 
who is director of policy at the uh, Economic Policy Institute, uh, but was formerly chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor under President Obama. Heidi and I have known each other for a long time, and we have collaborated on some cool things, including the overtime protections rule at the Labor Department under President Obama. Uh, And we did good work together, but they did it too late, and then the Trump administration killed it. Sad. Sad for everybody. I'm fascinated by her research on uh, the effect of automation on the labor market, wage stagnation, and inequality. She knows a ton about that stuff. Uh, So anyway, Heidi's a super interesting and brilliant woman. It'll be fun to talk to her. Are you there? I'm here. Yes. Can you hear me? It is. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Awesome. And uh, uh, you are either joined by or soon to be joined by uh, my colleague, Paul Constant. Cool. Hello. Can you hear Paul? Is that? I Yes, me? Yes. This is Heidi, and I can hear both of you. Okay. Hey, so let's talk automation and jobs. All right. That's one of our favorite okay. subjects. And uh, we're super happy to have you here. Uh, because you've put a, a ton of energy in your career uh, studying the effects of automation on the labor market and wage stagnation and inequality and so on and so forth. So um, so let's just start with your generalized take uh, on automation. Do Are, are robots going to take all the jobs? The answer to that, in my view, is a pretty clear no. And all we can appeal to is what has happened in the past, but we have had massive disruptions, massive disruptions, like the Industrial Revolution, computers, electricity, like all of these things have happened every single time everyone said, oh, this automation is going to displace all the jobs, and it doesn't happen. And it's because, and we can talk about why, how this happens, but that the economy can absorb it and just transfers the resources from the increased productivity towards other things. Um, one of the, I think the, the sort of best take home example here is um, in the early 1800s, over 80% of the employment in this country was in agriculture. So if you were a futurist in 1810, you could have very legitimately been screaming from the rooftops that, oh, my God, automation is going to take all the jobs. And you would have, in some very important sense, been right, because now less than 2% of workers in this country are employed in agriculture. But you would have been utterly wrong in thinking that we'd have no jobs. You, we, we completely automated agriculture, but... The, you know, the spending that was freed up because of the increased productivity in agriculture went elsewhere and created jobs elsewhere. So, you know, no one thinks that that decline in agriculture jobs actually led to mass unemployment. That doesn't mean that some workers weren't displaced. They were. That leads to that can and does and will continue to lead to hardship for workers who do get displaced. But I don't think that there's, there has never been any sustained, um, meaningful decline in the overall number of jobs as a result of technological change, and I don't expect that to happen in the future either. Uh, I think you make such a good point, and it's, I, I think 
in order to properly frame this policy debate, you do have to look at the historical trends. And I want to underscore one of the one of the points you're making here, which is it's not just that 80 percent of the people in the United States worked in agriculture. It's also that in 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 1810 uh, and I, I did have to look this up i want you to know i didn't know it uh, <laughs> when you said it there were only 7 million people who lived in the united states so it, so it, it, and today we have about 330 million people and unemployment rates are as low today as they were when we had 7 so with 50 times as many people uh, we, we are employing uh, essentially all of the people or the vast majority of people, even though uh, the nation's largest industry declined from 80 percent to about one percent. And, it, it, you know, and it, so the scale of the change, which is possible in an industry, which is essentially automated out of, um, uh, you know, is automated, is it, really I mean, you can't you can't get to a bigger scale than that. And yet today, um uh, you know, here we are with essentially full employment with only 1% of, you know, 1% of uh, workers devoted to agriculture. It's, it's really, it's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It has never caused, you know, technological change has never caused any sustained, meaningful job loss. That's just empirically true. Um, and it's not true just in the U.S. It's also true around the world. Um, so the, so that's empirically true in the past. The only thing that they can appeal to is that, oh, well, it's going to be totally different. Going but this forward. time and it's different. This time yeah. it's different. And you have always, we yeah. hear that all the time. Yeah. This time is different. This time is different. I um, I think that the thing that, that that's echoes of is that it is a diversion from real problems that we that are hitting us right now that are hitting us in the near term the medium term and the long term and we really need to be focused on but you know if you say ah oh, at some point we'll have no jobs then that sort of captures people's imagination and it gets this really breathless conversation going and diverts such important energy away from really really pressing issues right but it is understandable that people worry about this because you know the thing the thing about the human mind is that it, it definitely weighs risks more heavily than rewards uh, and it weighs what it can see more heavily than what it uh, is forced to imagine and and you know you can definitely see with your own eyes how certain kinds of innovation will um, take either a task or a job away, but it is profoundly difficult to imagine what will replace it, right? Like you, you, you just can't know. And one of the things that I think is important when people think about how this, how automation changes the labor market going forward is the pace of change actually really matters. And so there's one industry, the, you know, autonomous vehicle industry that I don't know. I, I only, I'm going to cite a couple of things, but they're only from what I just Googled. I'm not an expert in this, in this area, but it's definitely an area where people tend to think that change is coming quickly and it's going to be really dramatic. But when you think about what that means, so according to Google, there are around 2 million commercial tractor trailers on the road right now. They each cost 
in the ballpark of $150,000. So that's $300 billion of non-autonomous tractor trailers out there right now. So it's not like somebody's going to come buy up all $300 billion worth of totally functional, fine tractor, uh, non-autonomous tractor trailers and just trash them and replace them with much more expensive autonomous trucks overnight. I mean, even in this industry where I have no reason to believe that change isn't going to be coming soon, you can still see that on the ground that that change is going to happen slowly a relative, even in that industry, relatively slowly. And that's one of the ways these things get absorbed without having a lot of actual economic harm to some of, to many of the workers that were in those jobs. You have people retiring all the time, people transferring, changing jobs all the time. And then there's just, you could sort of see how there'd be fewer and fewer jobs in that area over time. The the macroeconomic scale is, is very useful. It's very informative. But, uh, you know, uh, just this week, Amazon announced that they were enacting a new automated uh, shipping procedure in their warehouses. So what would you say to a worker who was concerned about losing their work right now um, uh, in the face of automation? That's a really good point. And this is one of the things that I've a trap I fall into and many economists do. And we just you know, I constantly talk about we need we can't let our focused be diverted from this thing that's not going to change the net number of jobs in the economy, but that doesn't mean some workers won't get displaced. It is absolutely true that even though I don't think we'll see a big decline in the overall or any decline in the overall number of jobs as a result of technological change, some workers who do jobs that become automated will lose their jobs. And we actually don't have things set up very well in this country for that situation. So if like the I think of a sort of three legged stool of what we need for people who get displaced for any reason, not from necessarily from automation, but from any reason. So we need like the when when people start talking about this, often the first thing they jump to is tech, um, education and training. That's really important. We can't stop there. We also need to strengthen safety nets. So there's people have transition stuff that helps soften the blow and get them transition until they can find another um, job that works for them. And then what I would say is the most important sort of third leg of that stool is we need to do all of the things that, that this podcast has been talking about to increase good jobs. Because one of the reasons that it's so hard for people when they lose a job due to automation is that the jobs that are available out there aren't that great because wages have been held down for 40 years. We don't have good benefits. All of the things that are that are that are, have eroded job quality. So a whole agenda of boosting worker power to get good jobs is, is actually sort of counterintuitively really core towards helping people who do get displaced by automation. The point you're making about um, the uh, good jobs and the relationship between having an economy with lots of good jobs and the disruption created by te uh, technological unemployment or, or automation is a really is a really profound one. Uh, because obviously, if folks whose jobs are being automated have a ton of great alternatives, 
well, you know, that makes the whole um, problem go away. That's overstating it, but definitely softens the difficulty of the transformation. I think that's a really that's a really cool point. Not often thought of in this context, but it's just so fundamental to what does it mean when you lose your job for whatever reason? If you were hanging on to the one union job, like that, whatever. If you're, if you had a, a decent job, and you lose that job, and the labor market that you get dropped into just does not have good jobs in it, it's a way worse situation for you than if the labor market you get dropped into has strong labor standards, right. strong unionization, so workers like you, so you can find a decent job. Yeah, but I, all the yeah, it's really it's interesting because I, I mean I haven't studied this, but it strikes me that a big part of the disruption has been that folks who had good jobs that were either automated or outsourced and, you know, formerly robust manufacturing sector or whatever it is, people, folks who owned good, solid middle-class wages with benefits uh, and um, those jobs went away. Well, it wasn't probably in many ways that they couldn't find a job. It's just that going from $30 an hour with healthcare to $7.25 without healthcare for those workers didn't seem like a legitimate alternative. And in fact, wasn't uh, because there was no way they were going to be able to probably pay the rent in the house that they had or whatever it was that that, that new job, uh, because it paid so poorly, wasn't an effective replacement for the one that they had. And again, as, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, that that wasn't because uh, the new job they were offered somehow was uh, uh, profoundly less productive or interesting or important than the old one. It was that the industry or company that offered that job hadn't, you know, the, the workers hadn't been, um, you know, just hadn't had the power to negotiate a reasonable split of the value created in that industry. That was the yes. difference. I totally agree. Yeah. Like you put your finger on it. That's the really important difference. The problem there was not the technology, not the not the 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 technological change. The problem there was the things that meant that workers didn't have power on the job. Right. So it's the decline of unionization that led to that situation. And it's easy to point to the to the technological change as the thing that led to the displacement, but really at its core, the problem there is not the technological change. It is the erosion of worker power that meant that workers have have good jobs Correct. and find good jobs Correct. when they need to. Yeah, and one of the things that um, we've said before in the podcast that I think is really worth um, re- just resurfacing is that you know w- we can't we cannot end up in a circumstance where we fear automation and technology because automation and technology are largely how human societies have improved their circumstances since the beginning of human civilization. And I don't think we have to fear capitalism either, which is simply a way of organizing ourselves into groups to solve one another's problems. We'd have to fear is neoliberalism, an ideological framework uh, that concentrates the winnings and socializes the costs of these technologies and these transformations. That there's there's no economic reason why uh, new jobs uh, can't be good jobs and, and service jobs, among other things, can't be good jobs. It, it, and if they were, the folks who had been 
uh, displaced in the older industries and ma of manufacturing and other things would have transitioned much more easily to service jobs that uh, that supplied enough income and benefits to uh, allow them to maintain their lifestyle. I absolutely agree. And I would make one sort of friendly amendment in the one thing I'm keeping my eyes open for in this world of tech changing technology, as we've always had, but changing technology in the workplace, is I think rather than some wholesale displacement of people from jobs, the thing I'm sort of keeping my eyes on is more anecdotal evidence of how technology, when you have a situation of huge power imbalances in the labor market, as we do now, following you know 40 years of erosion of labor standards and institutions, when you have that big power imbalance, then technology can sometimes be used as a cudgel against workers. So the thing that I think of like immediately is the is the warehouse workers being asked to wear smartwatches, like the hyper monitoring of workers that that if those workers were unionized, that plant would not, those plant owners would not, those warehouse owners, sorry, would not be able to unilaterally just say, okay, all you workers are now going to wear smartwatches where we can hyper-monitor, like we can tell if you're taking an extra bathroom break. We can tell if you're congregating with other workers. Maybe you're organizing. So we will, you know, we can sort of surreptitiously retaliate against you, fire you or give you bad shifts or whatever it is. Like that kind, those kinds of technological changes and changes in how work gets done in that sense, but those kinds of things I think we do need to keep a real eye out for in this period we're in where there's such a huge imbalance of power between workers and employers. So uh, let's talk for a minute about solutions. What are some of the best policies you know of right now that, that help deal with that, that balance between automation and worker power? What, what I think of the power relationship in the labor market, what we know is that employers sort of inherently have power in the relationship. They're the ones who have the job with many workers. So each worker is vis-a-vis -vis their employer at you know, the the power imbalance is strong there. And then we used to have these things, these standards and institutions that provided workers with countervailing power. So there was more balance in the labor market. And those were the those were the years where we had, you know, as productivity as productivity rose, we also saw wages of low and middle income workers rise. Um, over the last four and a half decades, we've seen those things erode dramatically. So now we have this huge, we, now we can see what unchecked employer power looks like. Um, and it's stagnant wages, it's rising inequality. Um, and so it's the things that reverse that are what we need. And chief among them are policies to boost unionization, um, policies to boost labor standards and institutions. Those are key, and we could go on, like things to, I mean, like even macroeconomic policy to keep the unemployment rate low is 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 a super important piece of worker bargaining power and on and on it's the suite of things that will shift power back to workers 
there's lots of, I feel like, discussion around this conversation about automation where, where people who have benefited from the rigged economy often want to sort of make people think that, oh, it's unfortunate that we're seeing this rising inequality, but it's just the natural outgrowth of a modern economy with lots of technology. And that's just flat out wrong. What the situation we have now are the results of choices that we have made, and we could do this in another way. One thing we like to ask uh, all of our guests is, why why do you do the work that you do? What what brings you to to this field and 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 to this job specifically? Ooh, that's a really good question. I grew up in Iowa. I did not have like a political upbringing, and then. I sort of, you know, got around, read some interesting stuff in college and got around people who were reading and talking about more interesting stuff and just gradually became aware there was something sort of the kind of unveiling over, you know, the decades of my adulthood of just seeing just how kind of rigged the economy is against regular people and it and it's it's almost for me it's been a once you see that there's no turning back there's no like this is a real problem it's very fundamental i have some skills to bring to this and and that's the end of the story this is something i want to be a you know sort of a career well spent to work on these issues and so that's the, those are the it, it's 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 um kind of a a moral drive for me we are so grateful uh, for you having uh, spent the time with us on our podcast. This was super fun. Thanks so much, and say Thank hi you. to Larry and the gang for us, uh, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Okay, okay, cool. Have a good one. Take All care. Right. Bye. Bye. Cheers. You too. Bye. So one of the things that that struck me from our our talk with Heidi is the historical component because the terminology used to describe, you know, robots taking your jobs is always so modern, right? It's always cutting edge technology that's taking away a job or, uh, you know, there's always some some news segment showing off how cool this new self-driving car is or something like that. So it feels like a problem that's never been confronted before. I think looking at it in a historical context is uh, provides a whole bunch of new uh, insights that, that people don't ordinarily think of. That's right. And, you know, we have to be super attentive, I think, to the real challenge that individual workers have in in particular industries around automation and transformation and make sure that we have a policy framework that supports those transformations and make sure that people are okay through those transformations. But we definitely don't want to fear technology. We don't want to fear automation. And and we don't want to be bullied uh, by the trickle downers into believing that we should keep wages low to keep the automation uh, at bay. That's just that's just that's just a con job to keep wages low and profits high. Yeah. So it sounds like a it sounds like a newfangled problem, but the solution is actually pretty old school, taking yes. care of your workers. Yes. It's not that complicated. So I'm incredibly uh, excited to get to talk to our next guest. Daron Asamuglu, who is one of the foremost economists really in the world. He teaches at MIT. He is the author of one of our favorite books, uh, Why Nations Fail, and has done a ton of research around jobs and automation. (laughs) 
Well, uh, listen, thank you again so much for joining us today. Um, we are huge fans of your work and uh, your book, um, uh, uh, Why Nations Fail, is required reading in our shop. It's, it's, it was just such a, a, you know, really kind of a breakthrough book on why some societies uh, do well and why most, why some don't. So have you continued that line of research? Sure. Actually, we have a new book coming out in September called The Narrow Corridor, which is about the evolution of liberty over the ages and today. So it sort of continues, but uh, sort of adds to the themes of why nations fail. So let's see whether you'll uh, like that or you'll hate it. You'll see. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Oh, great. We look forward to reading that for sure. So mostly we wanted to talk to you today about your research on jobs and automation. And, you know, you are one of the world's leading experts in this field. So maybe lay out your view of, of the issues and the problems and how we should think about it. Well, you know, I mean, first of all, just to lay the scene, I think, you know, automation together with, you know, the uh, sort of changes in the institutional order we're facing in the U.S. and around the world and climate change are the three most important problems facing us today. And, and, and what's common between all three of these problems, uh, I know we're going to focus on automation, but just to plug for the rest also, is that I think they are urgent, they're challenging, but they're also opportunities. They're opportunities for us to actually up the game and do new things and also in the process uh, strengthen our society. But, but those opportunities are very difficult for us to find the right sort of uh, political and social consensus to support those solutions. So that's exactly my sort of vision for what's going on with automation also. Automation broadly, including industrial robots, AI, and all sorts of uh, AI supporting applications, uh, such as big data machine learning. They are providing amazing tools for us to increase productivity and uh, diversify the set of activities we can perform. But at the same time, they are also creating great strains for our existing institutions that undergird shared prosperity because they destroy jobs and often they are also require new ways of creating jobs that we are not completely familiar or completely comfortable with yet. And they also change the ways in which the balance between capital and labor, between states and societies, are uh, being configured. So all of these are potentially discombobulating for society and make it much harder for us to maintain the same sets of sort of solutions that we have devised over the last century for maintaining inclusive prosperity, prosperity that benefits society at large. In Why Nations Fail, you talked about how, and I thought this was really surprising, how people in power in some nations uh, oppose the Industrial Revolution. Because it seems to me in, the, in modern times that the people in power are the ones who are promoting automation uh, and, and AI and things like that. Is my perception of it now true, or do you see are, are people in power sort of is there a friction between them and, and the and the incoming waves of automation? 
this question is telling about a number of issues that uh, we should really talk about. One of them is, you're absolutely right, if you look at the history of technology and economic growth, one of the weaknesses, almost the Achilles heel of authoritarian extractive regimes was that they either blocked new technologies or they did not provide the right ecosystem for those technologies to be invested in and to flourish. So as you pointed out, you know, many countries opposed factory systems, railways. They were late in adopting many of the uh, new technologies that brought greater productivity. But there isn't a uh, sort of an iron law that says extractive regimes will always oppose industrial production or new technologies. In fact, many of the uh, countries in Europe when the Industrial Revolution started were not fully inclusive. And they actually had a vision of building factories that would increase productivity, but would certainly not create shared prosperity. So factory uh, technology spread in the UK, which was the leader, quite rapidly at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. But it was also based on the exploitation of women's and children's labor. It was based on sort of employing low-skill, low-wage labor. Uh, and sometimes even employers wanted to use repression and were successful, uh, not just against sort of low-skill workers, but against middle-skill workers. But all of these changed in the UK and later in France and Germany, as, for example, there was more and more pressure from uh, worker organizations, from citizens' organizations for both political and economic rights. So it's not a surprise that, for example, movements like the Chartist movement sort of married economic demands together with political demands because they realized the two went hand in hand. So that's how sort of more inclusive political and economic systems uh, emerged. Today, when you look at it, it's much more similar to the second type of response that you see among authoritarian regimes. It's not the case that China, for example, just to pick one obvious example, is likely to block new technologies anytime soon, but it wants to use new technologies in a way that's not necessarily consistent with shared prosperity and certainly not consistent with rights and uh, uh, voice for the majority of its population. And even in the United States, I think there is a, a real soul searching and political tension about how we should use these new technologies for developing a new social consensus. So the one vision is, you know, uh, we're going to need less and less workers and uh, the very creative, the very rich are going to get rich and the rest are not going to share in this uh, sort of prosperity. We'll either keep them happy because we give them universal basic income, we keep them happy because they have TV shops or we repress them or whatever, but this is going to be a very much a two-class society. I don't think that's the best way of proceeding and a different vision is to try to do the more difficult thing is to see how we can increase productivity, use technologies, but in a way that's consistent with shared prosperity. Yeah, so... Daron, you've written that technology can either be used to displace labor or enhance labor productivity. 
Exactly. That's where we're coming. Yeah. Yeah. So can you explain what you mean by that? That's exactly what I was referring to, but in an oblique way in the previous uh, statement, (laughs) which is that, you know, if why is it that we have these two ways of sort of founding a new society, a new social compact, so to speak? It's not because like we're going to do the same things no matter what. And then the only question is how much uh, we're going to tax high incomes. It's not just about redistribution. Of course, redistribution is part of it, but actually it's a small part of it. The bigger part is how we use the technology, what types of jobs we create, in what direction do we push on the technology frontier. And the crucial observation here is exactly the one that you emphasize. A technology platform and almost all of the really uh, transformative technologies we're talking about are platforms. They can be developed in a multitude of ways. All technology platforms can be used more for automating, meaning for using machines for tasks previously performed by labor, or they can be used for creating new tasks for labor, enhancing labor's productivity in in both the sets of tasks that it was producing before and in new tasks that it can perform. And it's that tension that's going to determine where we go. And, you know, just to emphasize, automation is not a new thing. This tension has been with us. You know, we've started, you know, you started with the Industrial Revolution. What was the Industrial Revolution? Industrial Revolution was perhaps still, despite what we're undergoing right now, still the biggest phase of automation in the history of humanity, which is that you know, people found ways of machine ways ways for machines to perform the tasks that were previously done by skilled weavers, artisans, uh, metal workers, uh, blacksmiths, and 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 so on. So it was all of this uh, sort of automation process that was at the root of 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 the early phases of the British Industrial Revolution. But you know how more shared prosperity came about wasn't simply that. You know, the British state introduced redistributive taxation. It did so, but very, very slowly and very, very late. Much more it came because uh, there were concerted moves for using technology for other things. A whole host of new occupations from factory floor work uh, to managerial design work, later for non-production work, both in in the manufacturing and non-manufacturing sectors, were introduced. And it was those sectors that both contributed to productivity and soaked up all of the labor that was increasing very much because agricultural labor was declining because of mechanization of agriculture, population was growing, people were moving to major cities. But all of these people found jobs, or most of them found jobs ultimately, because of these new tasks that were being created because of these labor-enhancing, labor-reinstating technological functions. Right. I just want to emphasize, though, that technology and automation has been with us for much longer than the Industrial Revolution. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, technology is, and automation have been with us since, uh, since the first person uh, tied a stick to a rock. Uh, and, uh, and, <laughs> That's right. Um, and, Absolutely. And, and, <laughs> the, and, and fire, fire is, a, is an amazing technological breakthrough. Right. Many Absolutely. of these technological breakthroughs, when you think about them, bo- have both labor augmenting or labor enhancing and automation yeah. functions. You know, technology is broadening our horizon both productively and socially. And that, I think, is what's missing right now. So again, if you look at our recent economic history, say, since World War II, you know, it's a really interesting uh, break uh, in the middle of it. So for the first uh, 
four decades after the end of World War II, you see fairly rapid automation in the U.S. Uh, but this is going hand in hand with other technological changes so that at the same rate as labor is being displaced by automation, it's being reinstated by other technological changes. A lot of it is coming out of the uh, uh, in the, in the non-manufacturing sector, but some of it is coming in the manufacturing sector also. As a result, you see the labor share, for example, which means how much of the value added created in industry is going to labor as opposed to, say, capital. That's more or less constant in many, many industries on in the aggregate. But then around the 1980s, there's a break. So you see the labor share, especially in manufacturing, mining, and a few other sectors, you know, drop very sharply. And you're seeing a lot of automation, again, mostly in manufacturing, more recently uh, now in services and other sectors, uh, transport is coming. Uh, and no countervailing reinstatement, no countervailing new tasks, new activities. So it's like almost a very sharp break. And of course, that break, if you look at it, coincides with two other big macro trends. Wages stop growing and productivity growth actually becomes lackluster. So that's one of the most puzzling things that, you know, the optimists of technology and uh, people who are excited about Silicon Valley uh, and the tech world revolutionizing and everything don't emphasize or find ways of avoiding is that we're right. just not getting enough productivity growth out of these new technologies. Yeah, and I think but, that's related to how we are not using them the right way. That's right. But Daron, uh, there is a very simple explanation for this break, which is power the declining power of working people to sh fairly share in the value created by all of these technologies. And that leads to a bunch of uh, undesirable outcomes. Y using a very, very simple example, if you use a technology to replace 10% of your workforce, there are all sorts of ways in which that result can express itself in the economy. And one, one, one of those ways is, is where the owners get all of the benefits of that labor saving. Another way is where everybody who continues to work for that company gets a 10% wage increase. Yeah, <laughs> right. absolutely. In the latter case, when workers uh, are now being paid 10% more, one of the knock-on effects, of course, is that they're buying 10% more things. And when they buy 10% more things, that's having, a, that's having a feedback effect in in the economy, which is requiring businesses to make 10% more things, which is creating jobs both in existing in industries and in adjacent industries. And when we allowed the power dynamics in our economy to change and productivity and wages decoupled in the in the early 70s uh, aggregate amounts of spending declined as income concentrated at the top and productivity fell as it was no longer crucial for uh, employers to continue to invest to save on labor and so all of these things are inextricably intertwined I mean that I mean guess that my basic point is that it we it is the social norms that define how technology is deployed and who benefits, not anything intrinsic to the technology itself. So uh, I, I completely agree. They are intricately intertwined. But I think uh, this 
interconnected nature of technology and institutions, power, social norms, yeah. is really the thing to uh, focus on. Because yes. there's one narrative which I think is too simple, which is in the 1980s, there was a uh, shift against organized labor and, uh, and capital became stronger, and that's what explains everything. I think that is just not a good enough explanation. Sure, this shift happened you know, under Reagan, and perhaps before, uh, you know, there was a anti-union movement. Federal minimum wages were uh, uh, were not increased or were increased very little uh, yeah. from 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 then on. But I think that by itself explains a small part of what's going on. And the way that this whole change itself is intertwined with technology, if you want to think about it somewhat differently, is that because Technology, as I emphasize, is a platform. How we develop it depends on social norms, depends on institutional, depends on power dynamics. Yeah. And if you de develop technology in more of the automation way, that changes the power dynamics and these two become self-reinforcing. But crucially, that's, that's for it's sure. really the changes in technology that happen and it's not just organized labor, it's broader than that, I'll come back to that in a second, but it's changes in this technology shaped by our social preferences and social organization that then have these major effects on distribution of resources, the labor share wages and productivity. So for example, I think we can try to sort of gauge the effects of, you know, workers get poorer and therefore they don't demand certain types of products. That's there. You know, some people emphasize that. I think at the end, that's that's not a big deal. The bigger deal is really whether we are using technology the right way. I think that's where it is. And that's where all of these social institutional factors really are filtered through technology. And there, I think, you know, it's not just the effects of organized labor. It's really a broader sort of shift. And I would count among the factors that really matter there Three that are particularly important, in addition to uh, you know declining power of of organized labor. First, government's role in shepherding technology, especially into more creative, riskier, more blue sky type of projects, has really declined yeah. after the end of the Cold War and and a variety of other things. So the amount of government support and government leadership in technology has declined. Second, I think it is also absolutely critical that we have developed an ecosystem of technology around the tech world where the uh, mindset is geared almost completely towards automation. So if you think of, of the most successful companies and which are the sort of the source of all of the or most of the research in AI, machine learning, uh, automation type uh, activities, you know, it's all about, you know, getting the fallible human out of the picture, uh, have a business model that doesn't depend on humans, get a business model that's very cost effective, get a business model where you can have high degree of automation because that gives you greater control, greater flexibility, greater nimbleness. And all of this sort of ecosystem also means that technology is flowing more and more towards automation at the, ri at the risk of uh, doing doing other things with technology that's going to increase the productivity of labor. And third and equally important, you know, there has also been a change in social norms and institutions about how we approach 
firms and the corporate world. So the what is sometimes called the shareholders' values revolution yeah. meant that you know it became accepted for companies to ignore all of their stakeholders. Yeah, in, including their workers, their customers, and suppliers, and just focus on shareholders, and in particular, large shareholders, which meant a much more ruthless way of cost-cutting, you yeah. know, uh, breaking promises to workers, getting rid of workers at the expense of, uh, you know, benefiting from tax breaks and uh, and 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 taking jobs to. Uh, where you can find loopholes to make it less costly in terms of taxes or other things. So all of this sort of ensemble of things that have happened because of social reasons have added to this biased picture in which technology has been excessively directed towards automation and not for not for creating good jobs, highway jobs for middle class workers. Yeah. So I think I'm massively with you, and but I do want to push back on one just one thing you said, which is mm-hmm. that sure, of course. The, the power dynamic isn't as significant as people think, because um, because the, if if you if you simply held the median family in America harmless for the last forty mm-hmm. years of rising inequality. Instead of earning fifty nine thousand dollars a year, they would earn about a hundred and five or a hundred and ten thousand dollars a year. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. and if you were to think about the kind of economy we would have, in which in which this would be it, very different. But, but, but be, I want to clarify what I meant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what I yeah, but what I meant isn't that you know uh, a world in which you know the me- middle family is empowered technologically socially and economically compared to this one is not going to be very different of course it would be very different what i meant is yeah. keep the organized power of union the, the power of organized labor means 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 the trade unions power the same level as in 1970s but yeah. everything else the same government leadership and technology disappears we have a shareholders yes. values that's revolution yeah, managers that's yeah. and and, techno- <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. and, and silicon yeah. valley yeah. defines what automation is going to do we wouldn't yeah. be anywhere better and why not because actually we know from europe from, from cross country some of this in, in my work where you have more unionization and more, more wage push the adoption of automation technologies, if, if anything, is faster. So if you hold all the other social equilibrium constant and you just sort of make the uh, uh, truckers more bargain faster, more, and uh, and machinists bargain more, what you're going to do is you're going to just uh, make the adoption of the automation technologies even more powerful and more pronounced and, and nothing much will change. You really uh, need the whole social equilibrium to change and that's why I was emphasizing the other things. And, and I think the decline in the power of labor is very important, but within this context. Okay, but that being said, in 1965... It was unambiguously true that the median family in America was more prosperous than any other median family on planet Earth. And That's right. if you roll forward 40 years, that is unambiguously not true, that the median That's family right. in Sweden or Denmark or Switzerland or Germany is more prosperous than the median family in the United States. That's right. And that, that's right. And that's not because they have less automation or less technology. It's because their workers have more power. But it's again, you know, it's not like just workers power in a sort of a organized labor way. No, and, no, no, and no, no, one no. way it's of understanding that is actually primitive. compare. Yeah, yeah. It's just compare Germany and Sweden, which you yeah. pointed out to say 
Italy uh, <clears throat> or Greece. Yes. So in Italy yeah. and Greece, labor is actually very powerful. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's there's quite uh, you know militant yeah. unions that can hold their own, but it's not actually helping no. workers all that much. Correct. And the reason why that's the case is that actually, and France is actually closer to Italy and uh, and and Greece yes. also. And the reason is because these unions have not really created an environment in which they can work with firms in a way that's going to encourage the adoption and development of technologies that are going to increase labor's prospects. And as a result, what yeah. happens is that you have actually faster elimination of workers using technologies yes. because employers don't <laughs> want to deal with these workers. So the genius of the German and the Swedish systems yes. is, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and I, I, I've always been a little bit sort of ambiguous about this in the past, but I've become... Uh, convinced that the, the any any shortcoming of the system is 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 much less than its benefits is their corporatist structure, which means that unions are protecting the workers, but they are doing so in a way that's actually consistent with you know long term or middle term planning of businesses for their survival and prosperity, and it's that combination that has for example made German companies adopt automation technologies, for example, robotics very rapidly to compensate for their aging workforce, but at the same time create a lot of new manufacturing jobs. That's also the system that has, you know, enabled the Swedish uh, economy to sort of adapt uh, to to this changing environment. So, and, and again, that's sort of a very different view than, say, you know, the shareholders' values were going to uh, we're going to just look after the interests of the shareholders or the union saying we're just going to ask for the maximum wage gain that we want and we're going to have a uh, fairly conflictual relationship with uh, with the employers. And that's why it sort of a, has to be embedded in a social equilibrium where there is the right kind of communication between labor and uh, and businesses. Yeah, so interesting. So we have gone over our time, but we have one last question to ask you, which is sure, of course. Why do you why do you do your work? What brought you to it? Oh, I mean, I'm I'm excited about it. It's just, <laughs> you know, uh, it's the, it's the perfect. I couldn't have dreamt for a better job, which is you know, I work on things that I think matter for the world, and it's fun. It's new. It sort of has a degree of creativity. It's a degree of communication. You know, I started by saying, you know, I think the three most urgent problems facing us are <coughs> automation technologies, how we use them, institutions, how we shape the institutions for the future, climate change. Those are the topics I have the freedom to work on. Those are the topics I do my research on. So it's I have a passion for it, and it's it's fun to do it. So I think it's the it's the happiest medium for me. <laughs> it's so great. Well, Daron, thank you so much for spending time with us yeah, talking about these things. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for and having me. Can't here. wait to read the new book. Yeah, we can't wait to read the new book. And I know that our and I'll come. I'll come back if you want to have another one after the new book comes out. I, we, absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. Thank okay, you, Paul. We'll Thanks. Great, okay, great thank talking you. to you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. So, Paul, those were fascinating conversations yeah. about jobs and automation, and we were really lucky to get to talk to those folks about it. What do you think? I mean, I, you know, I feel a little, a little better about it just in terms of having identified, uh, identified the problems and the groups that are affected and, and 
looking at it from sort of an evolutionary perspective as opposed to a, a terror, you know, yeah. it's it's good to know that there are such smart people who are thinking yeah. about this problem. And I think uh, that's the kind of perspective we need as we as we think about dealing with a displacement in, in years to come. Yeah. Yeah. And as I reflect, I continue to believe um, that we need not fear automation or technology because that's how human societies have always improved our welfare. Mm -hmm. And we need not fear capitalism or markets because that's the institutional arrangement that allows people to come together and use technology to solve human problems. What we have to fear is an ideological ideological framework like neoliberalism, mm -hmm. which creates a circumstance within which technology and markets concentrate the winnings in few hands and socializes the losses on everyone else. That that's the problem is that, is that technology can be used to benefit everyone yeah. or it can be used to benefit the few and harm the many. And that, has nothing to do with the technology itself, really. It has to do with the social norms, uh, democratic regulation, and institutional frameworks that we use to manage the technology. And so, you know, it all does, at the end of the day, as our friend J.W. Mason says, it's politics all the way down, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it always comes down to uh, who gets what and why. Yeah. And we need to have citizens who demand that the technology be used to benefit the society broadly and not be, you know, bleed into this idea that, well, like, you know, what are we going to do? It's technology. There's no, that just because those people at Facebook are essentially um, monetizing humanity's deepest vulnerabilities. <laughs> well, that that's fine. You know, they, it's a free country. They should be able to do that. No, no. You know, like we have a right to decide how technology is used in our society and on a society. And I think that's, you know, that's for me, the main takeaway. Yeah. And I think that, that both Heidi and Daron had sort of the same conclusion that, that you need to have policies and, and a philosophy that, it, that puts more people at the table and includes everyone. Because, you know, if you take a strictly extractive point of view and uh, all the burgers are flipped by robots, then, you know, the robots aren't going to buy the burgers. Who is going to buy the burgers? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's For just, sure. it's just super important to, to make sure that everyone, that everyone is benefiting in some way from, yeah. from these amazing technological marvels that we're creating. Yep. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we are going to talk about this thing we called educationism with, uh, Diane Ravitch, one of the foremost experts on the subject. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fabley. See you next week. <laughs>